Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just had the absolute privilege of speaking with one of our all-time favorite authors, Daniel Kahneman, author of Thinking Fast and Slow, author of Noise, and of course, the Nobel Prize winner of, uh, I forget oh, what year, but it was a big year. 2002, 2003, any, whatever it was, it was absolutely incredible for two blokes who met at a pub to be able to speak to a Nobel Prize winner. I think that's our first one, yeah? First Nobel Prize winner. We'll put, it to the, the we'll put it to the long list of, oh yeah, who, who do we speak to? <laughs> Nobel Prize winners. We'll plural. definitely add that. Yeah, We've had prime ministers, we've had uh, marketing gurus, now we can say Nobel Prize winners. Uh, it was a fantastic chat. Uh, he was an absolute legend. Uh, we managed to squeeze some time when he was in a, in a hotel in Israel. Uh, we spoke a lot about biases, we spoke a lot about noise and then towards the end we spoke a, a bit about how he stays productive, uh, how he personally gets so much done and gets so much accomplished even at the ripe old age of 87. 88, wasn't he? He's 87. 87, there you go. Big Danny, here he is. I'll start, I'll start with a uh, sort of a cheeky, tongue-in-cheek sort of a question. Uh, you won the Nobel Prize in economics. You've been listed by a lot of uh, publications as one of the world's most influential economists of all time. What do you think about those, uh, those high praises? <laughs> well, uh, I don't think about them much, frankly. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not an economist, and I, I care more about what psychologists think about me because I'm a psychologist. <laughs> um, you know, I'm glad the work has been influential, uh, but it's, other, you know, I'm not an economist. That's really important to remember. <laughs> yeah, no, we totally get it. So it's it's hard to remember a day when we didn't have these biases. So um, you know, both of our lives we've we've always had these terms. But um, when you were starting your career, it wasn't a, a a big field that was out there. So how did you come up with a lot of the things that you came up with in say thinking fast and slow and throughout your career? Like, how did you notice these things and elements of human behaviour and irrationality? Uh, well. You know, I, I'm probably fairly perceptive and I'm quite introspective. And most of the biases that Emma Stursky and I studied, we discovered by studying ourselves. That is, we, we knew statistics and we constructed little problems where we knew the answer, but where our intuition was different from the correct answer. And we could recognize that we had that intuition although we could overcome it because we knew the way to compute it. So that was the way that we studied biases, really, primarily by, by making fun of ourselves and of each other. Too good. There seems to be an infinite list of biases or infinite list of things that humans do in our judgments and decision-making that don't seem to be quite right. Uh, of, I guess, your, your greatest hits of your biases, what do you think are some of the biggest ones that plague, plague us the most? Well, uh, you know, I think in the first place, it's really important to put it in perspective. Most of the thing that we do, we do quite well. And most of the time, people act quite reasonably. They, they, sometimes, they sometimes, rather frequently, uh, are not perfect. And when it comes to statistical thinking, uh, most people are downright bad. And that's, that's clear. So there is a big deficiency in in understanding basic statistical concepts that people had better understand, like how, how you make prediction on the basis of weak evidence and 
things like that that uh, people do in, intuitively in one way where the, they should be doing something entirely different. In terms of uh, what what's the most important bias, I would think the most significant bias is optimistic overconfidence. That is that people are very optimistic in general and they are very overconfident. And, and that is probably the key. That is, you see the world in one particular way and, and you can't imagine other ways of seeing the world. And that, that causes two things, actually. It causes overconfidence and it also causes what I've been studying recently. It causes people to be uh, incapable of detecting noise because they, they find it difficult to imagine that others looking at the same situation see it differently. So it's this business of seeing the world and thinking that you see the world as it is because that's the way it is. That is a very important bias, maybe the, the key bias of them all. Yeah, I really like that. And you saw these, these elements within yourself and you've seen it within others. I think what's really interesting, particularly with noise, where it's most evident is probably the smartest subsection of people in the world, whether it be judges doctors, insurers, you know, underwriters. So do you think that the, the, the smarter people are, in a sense, the harder it is to overcome some of these, um, you know, the, the irrational part of themselves? No. In the first place, I don't think that noise, you know, represents irrationality in general. I don't, I really don't like the word irrational. I never use it. Uh, so, but what is striking about noise, and, and that applies to highly intelligent people, is that when you see the world in a particular way, you're fairly convinced that you're seeing it correctly. That's the basic, you know, we don't go through life imagining other ways of seeing the world than, the, than how we see it. And we therefore are sort of blind to the possibility that other people will see things differently. Uh, that's, that is noise. It's not irrational. You know, we're just, each of us is trapped within his or her own head and, and we have difficulty seeing inside other people's heads. I, I, as soon as Jonesy said irrationality a second time, I knew you were going to pull him up and say that you don't. I, I've heard you say before that you don't like the word rationality or irrationality. What's, yeah. um, what's I guess, a better phrase uh, or, or what do you refer to it as instead of rationality or irrationality? Well, you know, rationality, as I use the term, is not exactly the way that most people use it. I use, for me, rationality is a technical term. Rationality is a logic. And, and it's a logic that is essentially impossible for people to follow because it requires all of your beliefs and all of your preferences to be internally consistent. And that is something that no human being, no finite mind can do. So rationality is sort of an impossible ideal. That's how I use the word. As for, you know, what characterizes people, uh, I just, I don't, I don't think of people as being unreasonable. I think of people as being human and it's the same mechanism that make us get what we get right in the world and, and get it wrong. In the same way, 
that we have a visual system that works beautifully by and large, but the visual system is subject to illusions. And it's the same with our cognitive system. It mostly works quite well, but it gets us, it gets us into illusions where, where we don't see things the way that we ought to be seeing them. Mm, fantastic. We, uh, we, we absolutely loved both of your books, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow and Noise, two of the best books we've ever come across on, on the podcast. Um, before we get a bit deeper into noise, can you start by telling us maybe about the difference between bias and noise and how noise pops its, uh, pops its head up in the world? Yeah, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked me that. So in the first place, I should define, explain how we use the word judgment. And the word judgment, as we use it, is not good judgment. It's not that kind of thing. We use, we speak of a judgment as a measurement. And it's a measurement where the measuring instrument is not a scientific instrument, it's a human mind. So a human mind assesses the situation and comes up with a judgment of that situation. So the model that we have in mind is measurement. Now, so now let's look at measurement, because in measurement you find bias and noise. So for example, your bathroom scale are almost certainly biased, so that on average, it either overestimates weights or it underestimates them. Very, you know, it, no, no scale is perfect. And a bathroom scale that you buy in the store <laughs> is certainly biased. In addition, your bathroom scale is almost certainly noisy, at least mine is. When I step off it and back on, it doesn't show me exactly the same number because the number that the scale shows depends on you know, how I stand and where I lean and so on. Now, that's noise. The variability is noise, and the average error is bias. And it's the same when we speak about judgment. The variability is noise, and the average error is bias. And I'll add something that will sound mathematical, but, but it's actually, you have to get the idea that mathematics don't matter at all. There is a way to measure error, inaccuracy. And that way, that procedure to measure error is basic to all the sciences and basic to statistics. And it's been accepted for uh, more than 200 years and it's associated with the name of the great mathematician Carl Frederick Gauss. And the equation, which you don't have to remember, but you'll see what the equation says. The equation said that the global measure of inaccuracy for a set of measurements equals to the square of the bias plus the square of the noise. And that's important. That is what, what you have to remember from that equation is that bias and noise make different contributions to errors. They are, the contributions are additive so that you will reduce overall error if you reduce noise just as much as you will improve accuracy if you reduce bias by the same amount. And that's the basic idea of, of this book, is that there are those two kinds of error, the variability and the average error, noise and bias. And most of the attention that has been paid to errors in people's judgments and decisions has been to the biases 
and there's been a lot of emphasis on biases, as you were saying, an almost infinite list of, of biases. There has been relatively little attention paid to noise. And we wrote a book in an attempt to sort of redress the balance so that people will pay more attention to noise and not focus exclusively on bias. Nice. Yeah, it feels like the noise is the uh, less successful but no less important sibling of, of bias. And you guys are sort of now bringing that into the spotlight as well. Uh, we did a, a, a podcast episode on some of our favorite parts from the book Noise. One thing that we mentioned was saying you can help reduce noise by having uh, almost like having a crowd, having a, a group of people and taking everybody's judgments because everybody's a little bit wrong. If you average them out, you get a little bit closer. Um, that's sort of a very basic high level idea. I know the idea of crowds is a lot more nuanced. Can you sort of tell us when having a crowd and having different people is a good thing for reducing error, but also how having a group of people uh, can actually uh, make greater errors rather than improve them? It really depends how you use the people. The best way of using a group of people is by obtaining independent judgments from each of them, where each of them, none of them knows what the others are saying. So each is independent. Now, when you do that, if you collect a lot of independent judgments, you can drive noise to zero because noise, there is a mathematical function I won't bore you with, but noise drops very rapidly with the number of independent observations. You don't get rid of bias by taking a crowd, by averaging a crowd, but you can get rid of noise essentially completely. So that's a big difference between noise and bias. But for that, the judgments have to be independent. When we get a group of people and you have them discuss things, the, then there's much less noise reduction because the discussion itself uh, gets noisy. Because when people are not independent of each other, they influence each other. And then it's as if you have a smaller crowd, basically. You know, it's like when you have a bunch of witnesses to a crime, if you let them speak among themselves, um, it's as if you had fewer witnesses because the, the testimony is less useful. And you also, you also mentioned how it's probably very, it matters a lot who speaks first. If you're in a meeting and someone raises their hand and suggests an idea, if the boss is the first one to say, that's a bad idea, and then the next person's a little bit passive and they say, yeah, I agree, it's a bad idea, it's going to be, it takes a, a strong person to fight back against the crowd once the cascade started tipping. Absolutely. Um, and that is why discussions they're uh, a way to improve judgment. There is no question about it, especially if you have people with diverse sources of knowledge that they can pool, then discussion can be very useful. But discussion doesn't necessarily reduce noise in the final judgments. And it doesn't reduce noise as much as it would if you had people each make their own judgment independently on the basis of all the evidence you would get something that is less noisy than the output of a group that comes up to a single conclusion. The average of the independent judgments will be less noisy and in general more accurate than anything that the group itself votes on and decides at their conclusion. Yeah, I like it. So, you know, one way is, is to get the knowledge of different crowds to come in and get somewhere close to the average. There's 
obviously going to be times in life where we make one big banger decision. Might be buying a house, might be a marriage, or just one big decision. So how do we go about making or a procedure of making the best possible decision in in these sort of circumstances? Well, in the book Noise, we propose sort of procedures for improving the quality of judgments and decisions. We call that decision hygiene. Uh, which And what we mean by that is that it's like washing your hands. It's a way of killing germs. You don't know which germ you're killing, but you're, you're clearly better off in terms of health if you follow the, the rules of hygiene. And, and there is a set of rules, and they're fairly simple. Uh, they're not easy for an individual to follow, but they're much easier for an organization to follow. So there are rules of how to organize the process of reaching a decision or reaching a judgment. Uh, averaging is one process, is one aspect of decision hygiene, but, but there are others. And the most important one probably is that when you have a problem, especially when you're going to have to come up with a single evaluation at the end, like evaluating a house or a business or a candidate for a job, then breaking up the problem into aspects or into properties and evaluating each aspect in turn separately. And then only then making a global judgment. That is a very important rule of decision hygiene. Delaying intuition, we call it, because we suggest that we should collect information and evaluate the separate aspects of a decision problem before they allow themselves to make the global judgment. Wait for the, to make the global judgment until you have all the information and evaluations on all the attributes. That's an example of decision hygiene. That's probably the most important principle. And what do you say to the, 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 the devil's advocate who says, oh, all this decision hygiene, making all these rules and structures and making it mechanistic, it's just like a, you know, you may as well give it to a computer rather than having our human judgment that makes us so special and puts our own intuition and our gut feeling into it. What would you say to a person like that? Well, uh, it's hard to argue with a person like that. Uh, <laughs> the, what, what we can say is that people are noisy, and if you reduce the noise, you are going to improve the quality of judgment. Intuition is quite noisy. There is no question. People have different intuitions. And each of each person is convinced in, you know, that their intuition is correct, but they have different intuitions and none of them is likely to be perfect. So that's what I would say. Now, it's true that decision hygiene, any set of rules to constrain judgment, there is a fear that it will become bureaucratic. There is a fear and it's justified. This is something you have to watch against, that's uh, doing things mechanically. But we think that some rules of decision hygiene, especially when they are rules that are applied by a group or by an organization that has a process, that following those rules is just helps people reach a better decision. It doesn't, it doesn't make them stupid, it doesn't make them mechanical, and it doesn't even eliminate the role of intuition. All it does is it delays intuition until 
all the information is available. Yeah, I like it. So how, how would you articulate the role of um, intuition and how is it different to what we're, we're talking about in your books and what's the circumstances where intuition's got the most impact or, or the best, uh, best power, I'd say? You know, people like using their intuition and they trust their intuition. And what we mean by intuition is that you have that feeling that you know the truth. And sometimes it's justified. Sometimes you really do know the truth, but you can get that feeling without knowing the truth. So there is no guarantee when you have an intuition that it's true. Uh, you know, some people define intuition as saying intuition is knowing without knowing why you know it. <laughs> That's fine, but intuition, it's not knowing. Intuition is believing that you know without knowing why you believe it. That's very different. Knowing, you know, when you know something, it's true. But intuitions are beliefs, and beliefs are not necessarily true. So the problem with intuition, so in some domains, uh, when you where algorithms can be applied, that is where there is enough encodable information and enough big data to create reliable algorithms, then algorithms are going to be better than people every time hmm. because they are most free. An algorithm, when you give it the same problem twice, comes up with the same answer. And if they use the same amount of information that, that is available to people and there is enough data for them to develop a good rule, then a machine learning algorithm uh, will, will beat people every time. Mm. However, most problems in real life, most of the big decision problems, cannot be given to algorithms because not the, all the information is codable and there isn't enough data to create an algorithm. So th there is, in some domains, there is competition between people and algorithms. And where there is competition, algorithms win. In other domains, algorithms simply cannot be constructed, or I would say cannot yet be constructed. And in those domains, you have to go with judgment and you have to improve judgment. So this is what we were trying to do. Yeah, I like it. And we're entering a world that's going to be full of data in, in the 21st century. Um, and thanks to your book, there's a lot of evidence out there of the, the upside of having a less noisy world, which has a big dollar amount um, associated with it. So do you think we're going to be entering into a less noisy world going forward? Are you optimistic in this way? Well, you know, it, it depends in which, it depends in which domains really. I mean, as I said, when, when you have relatively simple domains with codable information and big data, then we are definitely going to switch to algorithms and reduce noise. Whether the quality of judgment can be improved. That's a very, you know, whether noise in judgment can be reduced. Well, we don't know, we hope so. And, and we propose decision hygiene as a way to try, but there is no guarantee. And, and I make no forecast about how, what will happen to the quality of judgment in future. I guess we I can only wish everybody luck. Hopefully everyone takes some of these ideas on board and starts to move towards uh, accuracy. Shifting, I guess, a, a little bit away from your work and a little bit more towards you personally, I read the uh, the Michael Lewis book, The Undoing Project, which was a, 
a captivating read. Uh, I know I've heard you say like it's a it's more of an entertainment book. There's higher highs and lower lows and more conflicts and more drama than perhaps uh, the real world. There's just a little bit of salt and pepper and mayonnaise put on top. Uh, but one thing that I thought was interesting was you said that you're often writing long essays as a teenager and then as you, uh, you entered the Israeli army as a 21-year-old with not a lot of training and then you started doing your own experiments and you wanted to be a scientist conducting your own scientific research and studies. Uh, do you think that these are things that were sort of a, an inevitable path for you and these were steps along the way or are these just things that looking back you can connect the dots? Well, uh, I think I was interested in psychology, you know, and in, in people and in understanding what causes people to think like they do and to decide like they do and to feel as they do. I was interested in that as a small child. And, and it's true, I did write a, a psychological essay when I was 11 about the psychology of religion. So... <laughs> I was, you know, I, I was precocious in that sense and very interested in psychology. And I have been curious about people, you know, ever since. I give a lot of credit to my mother um, because I thought of her, I think of her as an intelligent gossip. She, she would talk about people in a way that was never black and white, but it was always interesting. And it, there was a bit of irony and, and it, was, it was really smart. And, and I've liked thinking that way about people with a bit of irony uh, ever since, and it's been a long time. Absolutely. And uh, I understand, Daniel, you're uh, you know, in your late 80s now um, and you obviously still got a, having a high impact on the world, I guess, with your, your career. What's your secret to be being so motivated for so long and keep producing some um, such fantastic work in the world? <laughs> You know, this is entirely luck. I mean, some entirely people, luck. Uh, you know, some people uh, age. You know, I've been lucky. Uh, I have very poor memory, but, you know, I, I've kept some of my marbles. I'm 87 years old, so I've been lucky uh, not, to, not to become more senile more quickly. Uh, and one thing that is definitely true, I think, is that keeping active and keeping your mind active um, is really is really good for your brain. So this is like exercise, and this is one reason. They, like pianists, for example, are very good in their old age because they just keep exercising. They keep working at it, and somehow they don't lose it. And I have kept busy pretty continuously for a long time now, and I hope that helps. It won't help indefinitely, but so far, so good. Uh, we, we've read um, Thinking Fast and Slow a couple of times now, and the, the most recent time we read it, uh, then we seem to notice anecdotally, it, like, it seemed like 40% or more of the books that we read for the next few months after that were drawing on one of your studies or one of your findings or one piece of research or even a chapter from your book. Uh, and, and claiming it or adding it to their own. Um, what do you think of that? Obviously, you've had such influence over people uh, and uh, you know the field of psychology that people are, are ripping off all your stuff all the time. Well, uh, you know, our, our work in res our research had a fair amount of impact on psychology. I mean, lots of people adopted the topic that we 
began to develop and followed it up and quite a few people sort of used methods that we had developed. And the same is true to a large extent in behavior economics. I mean, we had an influence and other people, you know, most of the progress has been done by other people, but, but we were instrumental in getting things started. I think that's true. Um, what else were you asking me there? Well, well I, I, to add to it a little bit, I was thinking about uh, an, a, a spectrum I imagined. On, on, on the far end of, of the spectrum, you've got the, the hardcore researchers and academics, the people that we probably we read about uh, who are doing all the groundwork and doing the scientific studies. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got the, uh, I guess, the popularizers, the people who are writing the yeah. books about them, like the Malcolm Gladwell and the Dan Pink types that we love a lot of their books as well and then probably in the middle you've got like the adam grant angela duckworth dan ariely who was sort of a bit of a blend of both worlds uh doing they're in academia but they're also popularizing their own work and the work of others um where do you pop yourself on that spectrum and what do you think about the two extremes of the spectrum i'm i'm clearly in the middle along with those that you mentioned uh it, the thinking fast and slow was more on the academic end than the books of Ariely, Duckworth, and, and Adam Grant. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, you know, it's a harder book. I think that fewer people finish thinking fast and slow than finish the books of these other guys and all the books of Malcolm Gladwell. So it's more of a, you know, it. it I tried very hard to make it a popular book, but it, it, I can't help myself. I'm a teacher. So <laughs> it had, had a sort of textbookish feeling that uh, Ariely and Duckworth and Adam Grant managed to avoid completely. But, but this is not an academic book. It was intended for the public, and, and it sold a lot of copies. And some of the people who bought the book even read it. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very dense book. I, I feel like I'm um, reading, um, you know, different books that it's a different experience. The remembering self versus the experiencing self <laughs> in a lot of a lot of books out there. And I feel like the, you know, your your books. It was during during reading it because it's such a dense learning experience. It's uh, you know, it's not like a Harry Potter type of book. But after you finish it, you remember it and you think, wow, that was. Gee, I, I learned so much then, and you know, I feel like the remembering self was slightly <laughs> different um, for me with your with uh, thinking fast and slow. Well, writing the book was torture. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it, and and I didn't and I didn't think it was working. I was trying to write a book that would be both respectable academically and and interesting and attractive to the public to the sort of the public that reads nonfiction. And I had the feeling when I was writing the book that I was missing both. Uh, in the end, it turned out better than I had expected. But even when I finished the book, I, I didn't really like it. Um, that's very interesting. But I suppose you had the, the experience itself. You didn't enjoy writing it. But I guess you, the, with, the, with the, the benefits of time and distance, then you eventually got back into a new book and thankfully we got noise out of it. Um, we're a, we're a, a podcast. We do a whole bunch of books. We've read over 300 books each now. Um, what are some of your favorite books uh, and or 
most influential books on on your work and your career if that if they're different questions well no question that my favorite book of recent years is a sapiens you know i'm one of many but i i think yuval harari is just wonderful had a that that was that was one of the few books i read twice just because i found it so interesting another book that uh that had a big influence on me with Nassim Taleb, mm. uh, both Fooled by Randomness and uh, The Black Swan uh, were really important books for me and and had a big effect. And aside from that, you know, there were many others, but those are the two that, that immediately come to mind. Yeah, I feel like uh, with me and Ashto were talking before this interview, I feel like uh, Fooled by Randomness was the closest book uh, to noise, I thought, in terms of capturing this concept, because it's a, it's crazy that noise wasn't a term that's coined right now in 2021 when we've got iPhones and everything, and it took this long for this concept to be actually, you know, out there in, in the culture. But um, do you think Full by Randomness somehow touches on noise a little bit? Well, Full by Randomness certainly does, uh, but it doesn't deal, as I recall, it doesn't deal with the topic of noise because the topic of the book noise is is fairly narrow. It's variability in human judgment. It's the fact that people, different people looking at the same thing, uh, form different opinions and different judgments. That's our topic. And that's how we define noise. So noise for us is unwanted variability of judgment, which is a very narrow definition. And I don't think that Fooled by randomness. Fooled by randomness was obviously about variability, but it was more about randomness. It was more about what I would call chance or luck than it was about noisy judgments. So, it, the topic of randomness and the topic of variability is a bigger topic than noise than the topic of noise about which we wrote the book because we wrote the book only about judgment noise. Yeah. I heard you say that uh, you thought noise was going to be a quick book to write, uh, but it ended up being three years. What's coming next for you? What's the next project, be that book or, or research or otherwise? You know, I'm 87, so uh, there won't be another book. Uh, and I keep my hand, you know, and I participate in a few research projects and, and you know, and I correspond with people and I may write a foreword for a book, but... In terms of big projects, uh, I think my last big project is behind me. Um, just before we, we wrap up, we want to say thanks for, firstly, for the, I guess, the consideration about, you mentioned the drill in the in the hotel that you were genuinely concerned about us, but we were just happy to talk to you. We're happy to go to a construction site and talk to you. Um, that's okay. And also, uh, I found back in our email inbox, all the way back in September 2017, we emailed you um, to ask for a, for an interview. And I think you replied within two or three hours. And we thought that was incredible just to get a reply uh, from someone of your, your stature. So thank you so much for, for that. And thanks for uh, chatting to us. It was, it's been incredible. It, it was fun for me. You're good interviewers and I, I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.